where we are. We have to understand the book of 1 Corinthians a lot about problems. You imagine a church that's just racked with problems. Powerful leaders promoting themselves over each other. Them getting their own loyal followers. One of them's having an affair with his mother and everybody's, or his father's wife and everybody's okay with it. Uh, Christians are suing each other in secular courts. Uh, as a backlash against the immorality that's going on, there's a part of the congregations that's promoting celibacy. Um, other debates rage on about resurrection and all the what happens in the resurrection. And as if all of this wasn't enough, the prophecy, the ability, and the gifts that they had and prophecies and speaking tongues, they're, they're jealous and clamoring after these things that they've been gifted with. And there's a significant number of them that are very immature. And we have to understand when Paul wrote this letter to Corinth, this is actually his second letter. There's actually three Corinthian letters. The first one isn't recorded in the scriptures, but there was a lot of immaturity going on. And as Paul had written this second letter to them, this has been about three years since Paul left Corinth. So there's not been any development of maturity that's gone on. And we covered that in chapters 3 and 4. And it's very important that we understand that, that these weren't just like new Christians right up out of the water six months in. There were a lot of problems going into years after Paul had left. And Paul deals with all of these problems throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And this is kind of the major themes as we've gone in the book of 1 Corinthians and we look at Right at the beginning, what sets the, the whole stage for it is he talks about their position and their possessions in Christ. And you have to view the entirety of 1 Corinthians through those first nine verses, really, as Paul sets all this up. And I want us to understand as Paul goes through these different uh, divisions that they had in chapters 1 through 4 and the, dealing with their immaturity, we paused and we looked at a lesson called Valuing Souls because ultimately... They weren't valuing one another, much less the souls of other peoples. As we go through chapters 5 and 6, there's depravities that they're dealing with. In 7 through 10, he begins to talk about personal problems. At the end, he begins to talk about worship problems. And in that worship problem section is that one chapter that we all really like to look at, that chapter about love. And as we get there, we're going to find out why Paul put it right there in the worship problems. And he closes out looking at problems concerning the resurrection in chapter 15. So, when you deal with people, the reality is, is that you're going to become harmed. You're going to be offended. When you deal with people, people are going to hurt your feelings. Uh, there are things that are going to happen to you. People are going to say things that might slight you. The key is, is asking the question, how are we going to respond, or how are we to respond when that occurs. That's what Paul's dealing with really right here, is the response of being harmed, offended, defrauded. What is the response? How do you solve these problems? And I want you to think about, once again, we're going to go back and kind of look at this through the lens of the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, it's obvious that they were already having problems. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling amongst you, my brothers. 
in chapter 3 and verse 3, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So these problems that he's dealing with and have dealt with over and over again, it has to do with their maturity. It has to deal with their inability to do what? Disconnect from the flesh. That's the root cause of all of this. In the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that you have positions and possessions in Christ. Your position is that you're sanctified. You're called to be saints together. You have this togetherness and you've been set apart. The possessions that they had in those first nine verses was God's grace, the spiritual wealth. They had the gospel. They had eternal salvation. They had fellowship with Christ. Whenever you take it and look at everything through that lens, that's very important. That's why Paul did what he did. Because as you go through these different studies throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, and you plop down right in the middle of chapter 6, there are things that don't make sense. Or you plop down right in the middle of chapter 7 and things just don't make sense. But when viewed the way Paul wanted the readers to view it, which is through those positions and possessions in Christ, you get to see exactly what Paul wanted us to see. In chapter 2, Paul is dealing a lot with the foolishness, what the world views Christianity as foolishness, or the foolishness of the cross, or the foolishness of the gospel. And he closes out chapter 2 by saying this, For who has understood the mind of the Lord is to instruct him? Who has the ability to understand the mind of the Lord that he can actually go out and say, this is the way it ought to be? That's very important that we understand that. That's very important that that we understand why he was writing that. Because the world had crept into the church, they weren't parting with the flesh, and now they had all of these problems, and there was things tantamount to them pretty much saying, well, this is the way it should be. God, you don't know what you're doing. But he closes that chapter with one of the most powerful sentences I believe we have as Christians. But we have the mind of Christ. Everything changes in that one sentence as Paul pivots to dealing with maturity in chapter 4. Why? Because that's who we belong to. In chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, he makes a statement there. Don't you know that you were bought for a price? That you were paid for with a price? We belong to Christ. We have the mind of Christ. He has given us His mind. Therefore, that is what we should follow. Now, I'm bringing this up because as we go through this, there are things that Paul says that our fleshly minds do not like. And there's a lot to deal with submission throughout all these different things, these problems going on. Not just submission to Christ, but submission to one another. And our bodies and our flesh rage at the ideas that Paul presents. But I want you to remember, we have the mind of Christ. 
Who are we to instruct the Lord? As we go into chapter 6, we need to understand that litigation was a part of everybody's everyday life in Athens. It kind of becomes some sort of a challenge. There was, it was entertainment. There were debates. There were areas in which they would argue and bicker and back and forth. Where do you think, why do you think all of the philosophers came out of this part of the world? It was a form of entertainment. I read and when I was doing research, one author said that every Athenian is a lawyer of some kind. As we read this, I want you to think about American culture and culture in Athens. And it's not much different. It's not much different at all. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So Paul gets right to it. You remember what Paul has been dealing with in chapter 5. He's been dealing with sexual immorality. And at the end of chapter 5, he makes the statement there, I'm not concerned with those outside the church. I'm not concerned with judging them. What I am concerned with was what's going on inside the church. And then he goes on to say, you've got a problem. What are you doing about it? Well, you're immediately suing one another. In this secular world of Athens, when a problem rose between two parties they would, that they couldn't settle between themselves, the first course was private arbitration. What would happen is each party was signed was assigned a what they would call a disinterested party or private citizen as an arbitrator. So you had two arbitrators involved in this event. Interestingly enough, every citizen had to serve as a public arbitrator during the 60th year of his life. Very interesting because what were they wanting to try? They were trying to achieve some people that had wisdom. So in your 60th year, you had to serve as a public arbitrator. If this process of arbitration didn't work, the case would go before a jury. And every citizen over the age of 30 was subject to serving as a juror. And these people were very involved in this. Corinthians were involved in disputing and representing the law and solving problems. And it wasn't like Carrie stole a pair of my cowboy boots and I need to go get those back. It was, Carrie said, I didn't like your blue velvet blazer. Well, now we got a beef. It was the smallest of things that they would take one another to court over. And Paul is getting to somewhat the absurdity and ridiculousness of everything that was going on. What is the primary cause of what, why they were doing what they were doing? Paul said it in chapter 2. You haven't disassociated yourself from the flesh. He drove it home in chapter 3 when he rebuked them for not understanding the gospel for what it was intended to. He went over it again in chapter 4 when he rebuked them for their lack of maturity. 
It was the same problem over and over again. You had a group of people that had the ability to disassociate themselves from the flesh, and the primary reason was this. They wanted one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They wanted to hold on to these worldly things, but they also wanted to be a part of Christ's kingdom. And now they're trying to bring it all together, and my social life is my social life, and my spiritual life is my spiritual life, and these are two different things. How is that any different than today? That is a struggle that is going on 2,000 years later. How do Christians handle their difference? Are we to be in the world and act like they do? Or is there a better way? Of course there's a better way. They had a misunderstanding. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? When you read the book of Ephesians and all the principles that Paul is establishing in the first three chapters, and then in chapter 4, he pivots and turns to this relationship between us and Christ, but he talks about Christ being on the throne and everything being in subject to Him. And very important in that is the relationship that we have with Christ. As Paul demonstrates here, when he says, don't you know you're the ones that are going to be judging the world? That you're the ones that will be able to do this at the right hand of Christ. How in the world can you not solve trivial problems? Verse 3 talks about us judging The saints judging angels. We're not told the element of what it is. The extent of what it is. But what we are aware of and made acutely aware of is the fact that we can't, they couldn't take care of the small things in life. He's rebuking them for not being able to just deal with the trivial matters of this world, how do you think you're going to deal with the greater things? Reality is, when we look at our lives today, I don't know if any of my brethren suing one another over trivial things. I'm going to be honest with you about that. It happens, I'm sure. I, when I was researching this, I read uh, an article in which uh, there was a church in Florida, denominational church, in which the preacher went and spent some money, and it wasn't as if it was in a malicious way or he was stealing or doing. He thought it was, it was for something that he needed for the church. Members of the congregation didn't like it and sued him. They wound up spending you know $70,000 in legal fees. That article went on to talk about the last time that preacher drove by that church on a Sunday morning. There were maybe four cars in the parking lot. 
Something, and as I, I have to be honest, as I read that, my first thought was, well, that's what happens whenever you don't have church structure the way God wanted it to be. <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have elders and you don't have the right things in place. But my next thought when I read that was, how ridiculous, how absurd. But my next thought was, you know, I don't know of anybody in, in my life or have been sued over some things, but I've had plenty of differences with people in the church. I'm not, a, well, there was a time in my life, I will admit, that conflict was something that maybe I strove for a little bit. I'll be honest. But I've also had to have times where I've had discussions with other people and sought out the wisdom of, the, of, the, of other people and said, hey, this is beyond res resolving between the two of us. It reminded me of a bet that Justin and I made many years ago. When AT&T was supposed to be getting 3G, and I was at the AT&T store and my phone, and... It said, you want it. And the guy said, well, that's because that's the new 3G. And I saw Justin at church that night, and we were talking about it. And Justin said, no, that's not 3G. And I was like, well, that's what the guy told me. And he said, I'll bet you 20 bucks. And I was like, fine. The AT&T guy said it. What do you know? <laughs> Justin wound up, I don't even think I ever paid you that. 20 bucks, Justin. <laughs> you know, Justin could come back and go, you owe me 20 bucks. <laughs> but it never has. If he wanted to make something big out of that, he, he could. And that's exactly what the church in Corinth was doing. Some small, petty thing would cause a lawsuit. And the amazing thing about that is that idea of pettiness. Because that's not changed. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? If a brother goes to law against a brother, and that before unbelievers. What is he really driving at here when he talks about this? It's a phrase that we talk about airing our dirty laundry. Why would you want to take your problems in the church, problems with one another, and then take it outside to courts and let everybody see it? What possible good could come from that? There is no way that anything is going to come from that that is going to advance the gospel. And you'll see here later, it's actually a deterrent to the gospel. That's a classic rights-driven mentality. That I have my rights, and you need to understand my rights. And if my rights aren't understood, then we're going to have a problem. In this case, they were taking one another to a court. 
In the case nowadays, what we have is whenever we have this classic my rights mentality, we put our rights above the needs of one another. We turn and we go talk to co-workers about problems that we have with other people in the church. We go talk to family members that aren't in the church and problems that we have in the church. And what do you think that does? So the question is, is what's more important? Your rights or the advancement of the gospel of Christ? Because that's what Paul is driving at here. Is there not one of you that is wise enough to solve a simple problem? Which brings up the next point in this section. To have problems, you have to be around people. To have problems in the church, you have to have to be around people in the church. You know, their culture was different than ours. Their culture was a lot different than ours. They, they lived in much smaller communities than we do. You know, whenever my wife and I got the opportunity to go to Italy this summer, that was one of the cool things I thought about all the different towns we went to. We rented a car and we would just drive and go to all these different towns. If we saw a town that kind of looked cool, we would stop there. It was, it was really neat. But even in these small towns, they lived on top of one another. And their communities were a much tighter group, tight-knit group than what American communities are. We're spread out. We drive, you know, 30 miles to go to work. You drive 30 miles in some of these places that you read in the New Testament, and you're in another country. Maybe two. Their communities were much smaller and much tighter knit. So when the church was established in these smaller communities, it was something that was new. It was something that was different. It drew people in many times. And they were a part of one another's lives. And that's why problems came out. In our idea of American Christianity today, it is not like that at all. It is very much a something of it's what we do and not who we are. It's very much something that is bothersome to me. Years ago, I worked in a funeral home, and one day we were talking about church luncheons. And a young lady I worked with was telling us, told me that she never eats at church luncheons. And I said, why not? It's like, pitch till you win, man. She said, I don't know those people. I don't know where that food's coming from. I proceeded to tell her, I don't think I've ever been to a church luncheon that I didn't really know the people that I was eating with. At many of these luncheons that I had gone to, I'd actually had the opportunity to be in their homes 
before ever going to the church luncheon. That it was enough that you could go through and identify everything that's being made. And you could say, this person made this and this person made this. And she did this. She, she stood there and she just goes, just completely grossed her out. But you know, that's Americanized Christianity. And that's why problems can't get resolved a lot of times because nobody connects enough to actually deal with the problem. To actually do what Paul suggests. Is there no one wise enough for you to simple, solve a simple dispute? The idea that my rights or our rights come first permeated the church in Corinth. It permeates Western Christianity. And it's still a problem 2,000 years later. He says that in, chat, in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. But why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Now, this is why viewing the first nine verses of this book is very important. And viewing it through the perspective of position and possessions and what God wants for us. Because this doesn't make sense. This is the part where our body says no. Why not be defrauded? I defrauded Justin 20 bucks. I've never paid him that. He's probably going to want to collect today. But the idea of being wronged, why not just be defrauded is what Paul says. Now you have to give clarification here. Not saying that the court system that we have is not useful or beneficial or that it doesn't serve its purpose. Paul used the court system many times. He referred to it in the book of Romans and the establishment of rulership and its intention and purpose. So there are things in which it must need go to court. There are things outside of our control that if a law is broken... It has to have legal consequences. If Trevor doesn't like what I say after the assembly and decides to come up and pull his pocket knife out and stab me, we've got to involve the legal system there a little bit, don't we? Laws have been broken. I think we can all understand that. But the petty things is what Paul was driving at. And he says, this is a defeat to you. This is defeat for you. Why were they defeated in this? Because you were losing the advancement of the gospel of Christ. That cross he talked about there in the first chapter, and how that people were turning people away from the cross of Christ by getting them to follow after them. They were doing the exact same thing 
as a congregation by suing one another in open courts. You are turning people away from the cross because they wanted nothing to do with it. Why? Because they weren't any different. You were just like everybody else. You're wrapped up in sexual immorality. You're wrapped up in the the exact same court systems as we are. You fill your bellies with wine and food. How are you any different? So they were completely defeated in this. And the gospel of Christ wasn't being advanced. Whenever you read passages like this, my objective is to always try to kind of connect it back to things that Christ taught about. It shows that cohesiveness of the Scriptures and the consistency of the Scriptures. But Christ taught many of the same things that Paul was saying here. He said in Matthew chapter 5, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and to be put in prison. Later on in that same chapter, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also, as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Principles that our body has a visceral reaction to. If someone sues you and takes what you've got, what did he say? Give him more. If someone forces you to walk a mile with them, and that was referring to Roman soldiers who could come up to anybody at any time and say, carry my pack or carry my equipment, and you had to carry that for them for at least one mile. And his admonishment was take it even further. Go the extra mile. If you're slapped on the right cheek, give the other cheek. These are principles that in that time and still today, we struggle with. We struggle with being submissive. We struggle with going the extra mile when somebody wrongs us. Why? That's the war of the flesh. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 8 as he struggled with that. And he says, oh wretched person that I am. We all have the same struggle and the same battle. Paul talks in this passage a lot in 5 and 6 about making judgments. And it's very important that we understand why he's driving this home. And I want us to also understand one other thing about that and how judgment is looked at through the eyes of the world versus the way that God wants us to view it through His Scriptures. You'll see on that first column there on the left, one of the most famous verses quoted, Christian or not, judge not, that you be not judged. 
And the idea is, is we're not to judge anybody, we're not to do anything, but whenever you read other passages in the Scripture, it's completely opposite of what people tend to think. And we have four primary passages dealing with judging and what God really wants us to know about judging. This is why Paul was saying you have a problem because someone can't do the smallest of things and make a judgment on an issue. The irony of that is that 2,000 years later, people still can't make a judgment on an issue because everybody goes to Matthew chapter 7 and says, judge not lest you be judged. Isn't that ironic? What did God intend and what did Christ intend when He said, Judge not, lest you be judged? His intention was for you to look at yourself when making judgments because the very judgment in which you judge other people is going to be put upon you. And you can marry that up with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As Paul said, For though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, talking about the person that was sleeping with his father's wife. So Paul didn't have a problem making a judgment, even though Paul wasn't even present. You go over to chapter 6. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? You have a responsibility to make judgments. You're not fulfilling that responsibility. How did we get in Western Christianity, to where it says we're not supposed to make judgments. In Matthew chapter 8, in dealing with problems, this harmonizes greatly with what Paul was saying in Matthew or 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have a problem with a brother, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained a brother. In Matthew chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why are you not going to your brother? Back in Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 18, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of the two or three witnesses. Paul establishes this principle again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Why are you not doing the very thing that Christ said that you should do? In Matthew chapter 18, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore I have, for what I have, for what have I had to do with judging outsiders? It is not those in, it is, excuse me, it is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those on the outside, purge the evil person from among you. These principles marry up time and time again. And somehow it's gotten convoluted to say, well, we can't judge situations and problems. 
And it's the furthest from the truth. And that's why we have this this version of mamby-pamby Christianity in which nobody wants to deal with problems. And if you don't deal with problems, are they ever going to get resolved? Or do they just fester like that wound until everything boils over and then the next thing you know, you're like that church with four cars in the parking lot? Because the gospel has been impeded upon. As we close today, as I studied this passage, one of the things that just, and maybe it's something that's just me as I go through Corinthians and a little bit jaded as I just see American culture come out and Corinth culture so much. And the idea of my rights and my will and my desires and I need to be heard and everybody needs to hear from me. And how dare you tell me what to do? I'm an American. And that theme just keeps recurring over and over again. And as I was seeing that theme in this chapter my mind immediately went back to our study that we just did in Revelation. And I I confessed before, and I will confess again, when we did Revelation, I wasn't that into it at the beginning. I really, really wasn't. It was very technical. I was thinking, man, this is Trevor's right up Trevor's alley. There was a lot of connections that had to be made that I was like, I'm too long-winded to make these connections. I'm going to be up here for three hours. So I really wasn't into the presentation piece of it, but I was really into the content study of it. And it became one of the most beneficial studies that I've done personally for me because it ultimately demonstrated the power of God and the plan of God and that God and His plan were not going to be deterred. And I remember sitting back as I kind of finished my studying up and that reality hit me that one of the greatest empire of that time couldn't quell Christianity. And that God's plan was not going to be stopped. But as I thought about that more and more and more, and I've since then, in this verse in Romans chapter 12 and verse 11, And many of us reference that verse, and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And He stood on the the sand on the side of the sea. In chapter 12 of Revelation, this dragon, which represents Satan, And it talks about a great battle that happens. And that he's defeated in that battle. But what I love about the defeat, he was defeated by what? He was defeated by the blood of the Lamb. He was defeated by the word of their testimony. When you read that in verse 17, those that kept the commandments of God. He was defeated by those that did not love their lives. 
And then it hit me. Every instance of those three points was victory in submission. Christ submitted to the cross. He willingly gave His blood. The church submitted to persecution. Find me one time in the Scriptures where Paul or Peter or anybody else admonishes them to take up arms against persecution. They submitted to persecution. To the point in which they didn't care for their lives. And I think about us today, and I think about the church in Corinth. They had a problem with this. We have a problem with this. The reason they couldn't resolve problems is because they couldn't submit. Many times the reason we can't resolve problems is because we can't submit. But God's plan to overthrow the Roman Empire as far as survivability of the church all came through submission. Think about that the next time you have a problem. Are you willing to submit to somebody and allow them to defraud you? Are you willing to submit and say, maybe I'm not wrong, but I don't have to have my point of view to be correct? And think about Christ and His submission to the cross. His willingness to give up His blood to the very creation in which He created. And how powerful that is for you and I. That without that, all of this has no point. Without that death, burial, and resurrection, our faith is useless. He's the one thing that connects each and every one of us. This morning, I want you to ask yourself a question. When you think about your neighbor, the person sitting next to you, the person sitting in front of you. Would you submit to them? Would you submit them to them for the purpose of developing a relationship? Even though you may be wrong. Because Christ did that very thing. He submitted to people that were wrong. And He calls you to submit today. Not just to one another, but ultimately to Him and His plan. And His plan is for you to be saved by meeting His blood that He willingly gave up in the waters of baptism. That's His plan. To be resurrected to a newness of life, a clean person, 
Your sins washed away. If you've not done that this morning, I ask you to do that. I'm also aware that there are many times that we have struggles in life. There are things that we need help with. We need prayers with. We need a hug. We need a pat on the back. I would ask this morning, if you find yourself in either of those groups, that you come forward as we sing the song that's been selected. 